The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, after a year-long delay due to COVID, months of testimony, dozens of witnesses, and nine days of cross-examination of the defendant, the People versus Robert Durst has finally come to an end with closing arguments. Court TV's Ted Rollins joins me to analyze those arguments and the odds that the infamous Durst could get yet another murder acquittal. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for downloading the Court TV Podcast. This is a very special Court TV Podcast. We're talking about a case that actually started last year, has taken five months, was interrupted by COVID, involves a a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, uh, real estate heir. His name is Robert Durst. He was the star of the Jinx documentary. He's a man who's been accused by prosecutors of killing three people, but the charges in this particular case are against one uh, for one victim, Susan Berman, his best friend. Long story short... The case is about Robert Durst and an allegation by prosecutors that he murdered his wife, Kathy, who disappeared in 1982, never found, and then covered up that murder by killing his good friend, Susan Berman, who apparently, according to prosecutors, helped him cover up the disappearance and murder of his wife. So that's the long and short of it. The bottom line, though, is you're talking about 40 years worth of evidence Packed into a five-month trial, and now the evidence is in, the arguments have been made, and as we're recording this podcast, the jury is deliberating. If they reach a verdict, um, before you listen to this, you can see the verdict and check it out. Go to our show notes. There'll be a link right there. But what we want to focus on right here are those closing arguments, the final words from the lawyers. After five months, 40 years worth of evidence, what they are saying to this jury and and how this case is so different than many that I've covered in the past and that we've covered at Court TV. Helping me today, uh, my good friend, colleague, Court TV anchor, Ted Rollins. Um, Ted, this, to me... Part of the uniqueness of this case is that it became seemingly very personal. The lawyers, very personal, going at each other, very personal between the defendant and the uh, prosecutor in this case. It, it, it's about the facts, but it's also about the, the people involved that have been going at it uh, for the last five months in front of this jury. Yeah, in all the cases we cover, there are the characters. There's the judge, the lawyers, the defendant, the victims. This was off the charts in terms of the characters in the courtroom, the attorneys, on both sides took on a role that we we've seen before but it's not very often and it's definitely not often where you see a prosecutor like john lewin who wears his emotions on his sleeves uh at daily on a daily basis and he, he did not disappoint in his closing arguments yeah and he doesn't like robert durst and this is a prosecutor who truly truly believes that a man has gotten away with murder for 40 years and he's going to be the man to stop him now on the flip side robert durst has amazing attorneys amazing attorneys and we can't forget robert durst was uh, accused of murder in galveston texas of morris black 
Uh, this prosecutor has also accused him of that murder. But at that actual murder trial in Texas, he was found not guilty, despite the fact that he admitted uh, shooting Morris Black uh, sort of accidentally in self-defense and then dismembering him, but was found not guilty. And he's got that same attorney, Dick DeGaron, helping him here, as well as other members of the team. So I want to start here, Ted, by um, playing some of the defense closing argument and you know, the prosecution goes first. We talked about that in last week's show. Uh, you, you can certainly uh, check check that out. We, we talk all about uh, Robert Durst testifying and, and what all the evidence is, et cetera, and check the show notes. Um, but here, directly responding to <laughs> a very, very good closing argument by prosecutors in, in their first closing argument as opposed to their rebuttal, and amazing the the approach and tact taken by the defense let's take a listen roaches in the soup really body parts nine days of beating up on a sick old man that can't defend himself calculated to cause you to hate him. I wouldn't blame you after seeing what you've seen in this courtroom. For hating Bob Durst. I don't. I've known him for 20 years. And I am proud I am proud to stand before you and defend Robert Durst when almost no one in the world would do so. Wow. And, and I guess what this really is, is dealing with a real difficult situation. I mean, watching this for, for five months, there's no way people are going to sit back and say, I like Robert Durst. You might think he's a little kooky. Um, a little feeble, but no one's going to like him, and, and many may dislike him, but they tried to make this um, and, and couch this argument and kind of set it up that it's about um, personalities, and, and it's about um, they're, they're, they have no evidence. They just want you to hate him. Yeah, the little guy is getting beat up on by the government. The old man has been beaten for nine days. This theme was, was Dick DeGaron's approach out of the gate in a uh, couple of things. I didn't like the fact that he said, I wouldn't blame you if you hated Robert Durst. Um, and I absolutely take exception with um, the fact that uh, he says no one would want to defend him. Uh, Bert, Durst is a billionaire. Uh, every lawyer in this country <laughs> would be standing outside that court. I'll do it because uh, Dick DeGaron has built a few homes, I'm sure, um, representing Robert Durst. But all in all, I, I agree with you. He's reading the jury. He knows, he must sense that there are, and there's nine women and three men on this jury, that uh, some of these jurors hate his client, and that was his way to address it. Now, the thing is, I've known him for 20 years, and, and I think the jury knows why he's known him for 20 years, because he killed and dismembered his neighbor, Morris Black, in Texas, and that's how they met. So it's not like, 
hey, you know, we both play golf at the same club or, you know, our my wife is friends with his with his girlfriend or 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 our kids go to preschool together or something like that. No, he knows him because he dismembered somebody in Texas and he's been representing him and he's a convicted felon. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it's a tactic and, and I have to just go back to, I think he's, he was just reading that room and, and he knew he was in trouble. And that was a good uh, shot at trying to possibly reverse somebody's opinion of his client, I, whether it worked, who knows? Well, how do you think this jury sees Robert Durst? Because what Dick DeGaran described him as, as a sick old man. And that's kind of who he is to a certain extent. He's, he was kind of sharp when he was testifying, right? He was he was cracking jokes. He was trying to outsmart the prosecutor, all of that. So he's not he didn't come across as feeble, but he's clearly old. He's clearly sick to a certain extent. Um, does the jury, do you think, do they see Robert Durst as a sick old man or do they see Robert Durst from 1982? Do they see Robert Durst uh, from 20 years ago? It's a, you know, I think that the prosecution has done a good job of trying to get the jury transferred or transported to the 80s, to the year 2000, to the old Robert Durst, the man who was capable of this. They've shown the the interviews that he's done. They um, have done their level best to try to change what the jury is seeing. That said, 18 months long uh, and five months in the courtroom with this man. There's familiarity there, and he has undoubtedly on some level bonded with these jurors. He's made them laugh several times. He's gone toe-to-toe with John Lewin. So I it, that's a fascinating – I would love – of all of the cases we've done lately, I would love to hear from this jury. And we just might because they've been at it so long and they're so comfortable. It, it would be fascinating to hear from some of these jurors. Oh, absolutely. And hopefully before they write their books, right? Before they write their books. Now – I want to play another um, uh, piece of the defense closing argument. I think this may be, if there's one piece that um, could resonate with a juror, and, and and what I always tried to do when I was a prosecutor was give the jurors little nuggets, little things that they could use for those that saw the case on, on my side that they could repeat and argue to other jurors. Listen to this, because I think this is something um, that they've used before. I, I'd probably use in every case, um, but could be very effective in this one. Now, I want you to recall what I said during the opening statements a long time ago. No evidence is evidence. In other words, the lack of evidence to prove the crime is the evidence you should consider in acquitting Bob. And I'm going to explain to you why we feel that way. They had a theory here, but they never put the meat to the bone. They told you how they believed things happened but they produced no real evidence to establish and fulfill their obligation to prove beyond a reasonable doubt their theory. There's no evidence that Mr. Durst murdered Susan Berman or Kathy Durst. This is a case with no real forensic evidence. It's 2021 and you heard no forensic evidence suggesting that Bob Durst shot and killed Ms. Berman. Now, that line is is genius. You know, no evidence is evidence, right? And it's actually true. I mean, no evidence is, is oftentimes what the defense relies upon in raising a reasonable doubt or, or showing a reasonable doubt in a case. But 
it's it's interesting in that wording because for me, evidence means one thing. Evidence is everything. It's testimony. It, it's 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 documents. It's physical thing. You know, it, it's it's more than just physical items or forensic items. But I think for many jurors and many people, when they think of evidence, they're thinking of, um, you know, a, a fiber, a fingerprint, DNA, something like that that is physical, that is tangible, that is not just words coming out of someone's mouth, even though words coming out of someone's mouth is evidence in our system of justice. But I think what he's trying to do is conflate physical evidence with evidence and and have a juror latch onto that and saying, well, they didn't have the forensics. They didn't, they could they couldn't prove it. They didn't put the gun in his hand. Yeah, that, that's what they're banking on. And they're they're banking on a juror, at least, holding this up because they've watched CSI, they've seen how these things are supposed to work. And where is it? Where's the beef? that was not on the bone that he talked about. And, you know, there is no murder weapon. There is no DNA. There are no fingerprints. It's diff- It's a different case. And, and you have to give props to the state of California and specifically John Lewin for bringing the case. I think many prosecutors would be very scared to bring this one. It is complicated and you do not have that, not, not alone aha moment. You don't have anything except for the cadaver note uh, and a few other little things um, that are not the typical pieces of evidence that jurors are looking for if they're going to render a guilty verdict. Yeah. And it comes down to me, it comes down to that definition and the perception in, in a juror's mind of what is evidence. I need evidence to it, for me to be convinced. I, I need that that piece of evidence. Right. We always say piece of evidence. But it, and I, I you have to spend time and and. Hopefully the jury understands this and carries it with them that when people testify and say things, that's evidence in the case. The evidence is the testimony. The evidence is physical items. The evidence is a videotape. The evidence is all of that. All of that is evidence, but I, I can definitely see a, a juror getting hung up on it. And, and again, this is, and this ties into another classic defense uh, um, argument that is made. And I would say it's made, Ted, probably in 80 to 90% of the trials that we cover, especially of the guilty defendants. Take a listen. The evidence showed that the police investigation in January and February of 2001 was shoddy and incomplete and did not produce one piece of forensic evidence establishing that Bob murdered Susan. Not a fingerprint of Bob near the body, I mean, they didn't find it. He even said that he was near the body, and they didn't find it. Who else's fingerprint did they not find? Is that acceptable? They didn't find a handprint. They found no DNA. They had Bob's DNA. They didn't bother doing anything. So we don't know what they would have found. I can't tell you how many times I've heard it at court TV and when I was a prosecutor. Every investigation is a shoddy investigation, according to defense, the defense bar. Shot, and they use that word every time, shoddy. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful word, shoddy investigation. What's interesting here is that no fingerprints, no handprint, no DNA. But Bob Durst admits that he was there. He wrote the cadaver note. He admits that he found her body. So a fingerprint, if it was there, he would say, of course it's there. 
Because Bob Durst said he was there. He got there after. She, so it's it's an argument that has means nothing in the real world, but sounds really good when you talk about a shoddy investigation. Oh, it's classic. Yeah, that's a great point. Is that, yeah, if they had a ton of evidence, then the defense would say, well, of course, there's evidence that Bob was there. He was there. Now they're saying they don't even have a. It's it's a classic redirection they've sat and listened to this man lie on those witness stand and this is a way to get around those stories that bob durst told and retold with different conclusions first i didn't write the cadaver note now i do I, oh yeah oh, i guess i did yeah oh i wasn't at susan Bur yeah well now that you really make a big deal out of it sure i was there um this is a deflection and to your point every single case uh, there is a there's a, a tone of this is a bad investigation emitted from every defense counsel um, that, that we see on court TV. Yeah. And including when I practice and as a young prosecutor, you don't get the cases like this. Right. I, I got a simple possession of cocaine uh, case. Right. Or it's actually crack cocaine in a vial. Right. And, and I'm sitting there listening to the defense attorney do his closing argument. And he says, Ladies and gentlemen, the, the prosecution did not present one fingerprint, not one fingerprint on any of these vials of cocaine, not one fingerprint of my client. And, and I'm, I'm laughing to myself because then I get up and say, ladies and gentlemen, they didn't test for a fingerprint because the vial of crack cocaine was in his pocket. It was in his pocket, ladies and gentlemen. If you get a vial of crack cocaine, find it in someone's pocket, you don't need to dust it for prints. Ay, ay, ay. For those that don't know, uh, you obviously were practicing in New Jersey with that. <laughs> <laughs> Not one fingerprint. Not one. I, I, I could still hear it resonating in my head, and I was just cracking up. I'm like, is this guy serious? Is this? I guess when you have nothing, that's the argument you make. So overall, how would you gauge, rate, um, analyze the defense argument as a whole, as the big conclusion to a to 40 years worth of evidence and in in a five-month trial that started before COVID. I think David Chesnoff, who delivered the second half, did an excellent job of using the playbook um, that we see defense attorneys use quite well. He has a vast amount of experience, just as Dick DeGarren. I was frankly a bit um, thrown by DeGarren's tactics. And, you know, he, he basically broke down and almost wept at one point saying that he felt bad, so bad for Bob Durst. It wasn't aggressive. It was, uh, please pity us, pity Robert Durst, where I think, I think Chesnoff was the right person to close it. And, uh, he did it and he did it with a much more aggressive, coherent, um, argument. Yeah. And I, and again, as we sit here right now, the jury, as you're listening, the jury may have already brought back the verdict, but as we're recording this, the, the jury is continuing into uh, their deliberations with, without reaching a verdict on, on the first day of deliberations. So um, it, it's unpredictable. And, and I have this thing, Ted, the, the Politan theorem, which uh, applies to how long a, a jury deliberation should take, but it, it's not set up to deal with a five month trial because under my theorem, uh, a normal deliberation for a case like this would be about four weeks, I think, under my calculation. So 
Um, if it comes in under four weeks, then it's a quick verdict, Ted, <laughs> under the Politan theorem. But everything in this case basically gets thrown out the window. All right, we've talked about the defense. When we come back, we're going to talk about the prosecution. And in our system of justice, ladies and gentlemen, the prosecution um, gets the last word. That's because they have the burden of proof. They're the only ones who have to provide any evidence in the case, and they have to prove the case beyond any and all reasonable doubt. So our system of justice gives them the slight advantage of having the final word. And in this case, the final word was delivered by the man who has made it his life's work to prosecute Robert Durst, John Lewin. We'll hear that when we return. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. We're not in a mock trial. This is not moot court. This is not some fact pattern that we just dreamed up. That man killed three people. Killed three people. He's up here, he's old and he's sick. He got to live to be old. He's 78 years old. Kathy never made it to 30. Susan Berman, his close friend, brutally executed. Morris Black, murdered and then dismembered. Yeah, he certainly has health issues now. No question. They are completely exaggerated. They have nothing to do with anything other than pity. But he's got some health issues, but he's lucky to have gotten to live to be 78 to have the health issues he does. Because his victims and their families, they don't have that same peace of mind. They don't have that same rest of their life, that same outlook, that same opportunity. Kathy's family, they've been grieving, you heard them, for 40 years without complete answers, which they'll probably never get. That is Prosecutor John Lewin, and that's a taste for for his tone, the, the power, the passion, everything that was thrown into his closing argument. And it's, it's not one without controversy. Because of, of, of the way he made the arguments and making it very personal, he's very outraged, he's mad, he's angry. Um, some people could believe that he, that he went too far in all that. And that's what I want to talk about first is, is the tone uh, and, and, and the way that John Lewin delivered this closing argument. Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor, uh, still with me. Uh, Ted, some people obviously taken back by and think it's, it's too much, it's whatever. But his explanation to the jury, I, I liked and, and what he said to the jury was, and, and I was surprised that he was able to say this because it's, it's kind of in the gray area of whether or not it's, it's appropriate. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, you know, if it was your loved one who was killed, wouldn't you want a prosecutor like me, you know, fighting, fighting for justice? And, and that's sort of the way he, he cloaked himself and, and explained um, his behavior, which he, he is self-aware. At least that's good, right? He's self-aware that he's like, over the top and is pedal to the metal uh, inside that courtroom. Yeah, and I think that's the difference. We've seen some bombastic attorneys that don't know their case that great, or it's a it's a sideshow. 
this is real. I mean, this guy is not, he might win an Academy Award someday because he, he is so engaging, but it's, this is not an act. He he is feeling this to his core, and he knows the case so well. His recall is amazing, and I would believe that a juror loves sitting in a courtroom with a prosecutor like John Lewin because he delivers the facts of a non-emotional prosecutor with absolute emotion on his sleeve and just hammers away. I, I, I think, you know, I, I've gone back and forth. You know, a couple of things done have been way over the top. All in all, I love this guy. I think he um, he brings it in a way that is you don't see it very often, especially on that side um, from the prosecution table. We, we see a lot of defense attorneys that bring it like this, but very rare you see a prosecutor who is that emotional and that invested. And, and I, I like it. I think the jurors did too. You know, that's so true, Ted, because you, you do see it more on the defense side, uh, almost exclusively. A lot of times from the prosecution, it's, it's kind of like, it's very vanilla. It's, 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 uh, you know, plain toast. It's, um, it's Joe Friday, just the facts. And sometimes that's effective. And sometimes that's, that's effective. Um, and, and I understand it. Uh, but, but I, I kind of appreciate this because you need uh, career prosecutors like this. Our system needs, needs them. All the good ones can't go on the other side. Otherwise justice fails. And you end up with people like me who was, you know, I, I had, I, I wasn't a prosecutor for, it wasn't my career. It wasn't my whole career. I was there for, you know, four years. And then after four years, I, I moved on to something else. And Without the career prosecutors in the office I worked in, uh, things would fall apart. And uh, I, I thought it was very effective. You know, the other thing that he did, Ted, is, is that he wasn't a one-trick pony. And because of the tone of this case, the length, and, and the way everyone's very comfortable with each other, um, even during his closing arguments, there were times where he's, he's, he's going on a complete tangent um, and, and kind of having a light moment with the jury. So the jury got to see a range from John Lewin. So he's not like some robotic um, prosecutorial monster. He, he came off, I, I think, a, a little bit more human. And he's just, you know, he's got a big personality. Huge personality. And um, some of the things that he was able to do to connect with this jury was self-deprecating. He acknowledged that he's over the top. He acknowledged that he keeps people on the witness stand for um, hours and hours and, and sometimes days longer than the average prosecutor. And in that, I think, ingratiated himself, I'm sure. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see again. I, I would love to get, get these jurors um, in, in an interview scenario, have them on your podcast and just let them talk about the different um, um, parts of this trial and, and what they thought about everybody, including John Lord. Oh, it would be amazing. All right. Now, let's I, I want to play another uh part of this rebuttal argument. And again, the rebuttal, you're supposed to respond to whatever the defense has said, because the prosecution goes first and they go last. Okay. In the middle is the defense. So in the beginning, they're supposed to put, argue all the evidence that, that they believe proves Robert Durst guilty. Then the defense goes, and then the prosecution has an opportunity to respond to arguments made by the defense. And check out this one, because I think this was another brilliant, brilliant uh, point made by the prosecutor. Who's the other villain in this case? It's me. I'm the villain. I'm the bad guy. Um, I noticed, and it was, it was interesting to me, that during closing argument, Mr. Chesnoff mentioned my name more than he talked about his own client's testimony. Um, and I want to address this really offensive 
characterization head on. So in Mr. DeGuerin's argument, the first thing that he did after mentioning cockroaches was to go on the attack against me. Um, his comment was something to the effect of that um, I beat up on a sick old man. Mr. Chesnoff, again, basically did the same thing. And I want to make something clear. No one on my team, we're not going to apologize for the way we've approached this case. We're not going to apologize. We have a job to do, and we've done it ethically, and we've done it professionally, and we've done it completely. Brilliant. Brilliant. Because, uh, you know, making it about the evidence is, is where the prosecution wants to go. The defense, I think, wants to make this trial more about the people involved in the trial, this, this, this thing that has played out in the courtroom for five months versus the 40 years' worth of evidence. And this is a great way to deal with that in, in a very simple term. Oh, yeah, they're just villainizing him, and they're making you think about him as the bad guy. Wait a minute. This is about the murder of three people. Let, 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 let's, get, let's shift the focus back onto the evidence uh, against the real bad guy here. I think it was a great move by John Lewin. Absolutely. And the aggressiveness, the unapologetic nature of that state, it was great. He's, he's saying, we don't apologize one iota. He didn't get up there and said, well, you know, we are sorry if, if, if we came across as aggressive, uh, we want to apologize. No, we are proud of ourselves for bringing this trial, for taking the risk. And at the end of the day, we're here because that man killed three human beings and we the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, we're going to make him accountable. Uh, let me ask you about that, about the three human beings. And in, in most trials, it's, it's, it's always a challenge. But here, it's much, much more of a challenge to humanize and bring the victims to life, to let the jury know that these were real people um, that, you know— it, it's not, it's, and I think John Lewin talked about this, you know, it's not a mock trial. This is, this is real, but to make the victims real and, and to make the jury feel that emotion that many times we get inside a, a courtroom because family members are there or it's much more recent in time. Uh, do you think in, in the course of these five months that for these jurors, it's when they go back to deliberate, they're going to be thinking about a, a, a life that Susan Berman lost, a life that Kathy lost, uh, a life that Morris Black lost. No, I don't. I, I think that it, the victims were not, they're basically not part of this trial, which is unfortunate, but you can trace it back to the reasons. It's the timing. It's the lack of relatives in the courtroom. Normally with three dead people, um, you've got dozens of relatives and friends that sit in the back of a courtroom every day. But because of time, because of COVID, that's not there. And, and, and you just, you know, all three of them are just so removed because of the amount of time between their either disappearance or murders that they're not, they don't have the same standing that you would normally see. And I think that John Lewin has done his level best at, at trying to bring them to life, but I don't think there was any way to do it. And, and you did have another problem here is, is the, the trashing of the victims as well. I mean, portraying Kathy Durst as this, this spoiled party girl kind of situation, Susan Berman um, helping in a murder. I mean, 
the reason she gets murdered and the motive is, is that she's involved in the other murder. And that never helps, right? When you've got a, a victim who, according to your own theory, has helped this defendant cover up the murder of another person. And to me, that was, that made it even more tricky for John Lewin. But I, I agree with you, Ted, that that is the part of this case that doesn't exist. And I think that makes it easier at some point for a juror to um, either not be convinced or, or, or believe that um, maybe they haven't brought, brought enough evidence uh, to, to make someone feel like they can convict this man of murder. I totally agree. I think that the, the, in most cases like this, you have different types of emotion. One of the emotions that you have when, when you have a triple murder suspect in the room is you're scared. You're scared that the guy's actually there in a normal trial that only lasts a week or two. There's that element like, oh my gosh, that's gone because of the length of time and the fact that he is not a scary individual anymore and all the laughing in the courtroom. And then you you do have a lack of, uh, think about the Scott Peterson trial. Those jurors went back to deliberate and whose face did they see? It was Lacey. It was that beautiful brown eyed woman that lost her life with her unborn son inside her body. And they just don't have that in this case. And uh, that will potentially throw maybe a wrinkle into it. I, you know, we'll have to wait and see. And, and that makes it less real, less real for the jury. And yet on the fact that they, during the course of the five month trial, they were watching movies as well. Right. I mean, they, they watched Ryan, Go a Ryan Gosling movie was part of the evidence in the case. Right. So they're, they're not scared of Ryan Gosling and they don't have that fear factor of, of the defendant of letting him go. You know, some cases you're like, there's, they, we got it. I don't know if they proved it or not, but there's no way in heck I'm letting that dude walk around town. That's not the case here. Robert Durst being found not guilty. Is he going to kill anybody? No. And you don't have that, the same, um, feelings that you would have in a triple murder trial. And that essentially is what this is. And that brings us to the question of, uh, you know, does the verdict even matter here? Right. And I think that's what the defense was looking for was like, look, this doesn't even matter. Like, why, why are we here? Look at this sick old man. Well, um, the prosecutor, John Lewin dealt with that directly as well. And again, in a very aggressive way, take a listen. Why does it really matter? It matters because of Kathy and of Morris and of Susan. Justice matters. Consequences matter. Do not let this narcissistic psychopath get away with what he has done, what he did to Susan Berman. There's one verdict in this case, one verdict only, that is guilty. Narcissistic psychopath, part of his theme of, of describing Robert Durst, very aggressive. I mean, rarely do, do you as a prosecutor um, come out with those words, but uh, he did. Um, you can tell from his delivery that he absolutely believes it. Um, do you think the jury looks at Robert Durst and sees a narcissistic psychopath? Or do they see a sick old man? I, I think courtesy of John Lewin, they they do see a narcissistic psychopath. And without John Lewin's passion and calling him out, they could have seen that old man. And that's John Lewin's job is to take away that look of Robert Durst, the, the comfortableness and, and remind them of what he has to be. If you think he's guilty, then he is a narcissistic psychopath. And 
I love that line. I'm surprised he was able to get away with it on some level, but um, there are things <laughs> which you alluded to earlier. They watch movies in this courtroom. Uh, this was a different kind of case with different rules as well. And John Lewin took advantage of them all. And, and the bottom line, um, when it comes to mistakes made at trial, if, if the prosecution loses and the defense wins, there is no appeal, ladies and gentlemen. But if the prosecution wins and the defense loses, they can always appeal. Uh, but I've got to think part in the back of John Lewin's mind in this case is if I get this conviction, the appeal probably pretty moot because appeals take not weeks, not months, but years. And how many years does Robert Durst actually have left? So if he were to win an appeal, um, maybe it's before he passes away. Maybe it's not. So I wonder if John Lewin had that in the back of his mind in terms of the aggressive approach he took uh, in, in the argument and in the way he tried the case. I think absolutely. And, and it's smart. There is no downside to because there is no let's be honest, the odds of Durst outliving an appeal that, that comes back in his favor that also doesn't allow a retrial. I mean, I think on some level, uh, John Lewin might be cheering for it to be uh, overturned or sent back and he gets to do it again. Every movie, Ted, has a sequel. Every movie has a sequel. This would be the third Robert Durst murder trial. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think uh, they went all in and uh, they did it because they wanted the guilty conviction. And, you know, we don't know. The jury's out right now, but I got to believe they come back with a guilty verdict. All right, Ted. Ted Rollins going out on the limb there. I always say I never know what these people are going to do. The way I always make my predictions or couch them is by what verdict would surprise me. And in this case... Um, 12 people agreeing to not guilty would surprise me. Uh, the other two potential things, which are, you know, they all don't agree. I, I could see that to a certain extent. Um, but I'm, I'm with you, Ted, more likely. Um, I think we, we, we see a, a guilty verdict here. And that's because he exposed himself uh, during his testimony. And I think he exposed himself as someone who's trying to outwit, outthink his nemesis, the prosecutor, much like a villain uh, in Batman, and, and not the Batman movies, but the cartoonish uh, Batman TV series, you know, like he's 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 writing notes and he's doing this and he he wants to get up on the stand because he wants to go toe to toe and he wants to outsmart uh, John Lewin. And by doing that, I think he exposed himself as that narcissistic psychopath who's who thinks he's can outsmart the system because he was born rich. Yeah, and he, he kind of looks like uh, Burgess Meredith, who played the uh, Penguin. <laughs> so, On that note, Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor. You can watch him every morning on your front row seat to justice. Ted, thanks so much. Uh, we'll get back into uh, our verdict watch uh, for our TV show, which we have, uh, by the way, all day, every day. Uh, when we come back, folks, uh, I'm going to tell you the beauty of this case and, and, and why – you know, as crazy as it was, as different as it was, why this case, in my eyes, really illuminates um, the, the beauty of our system of justice. That's next. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area.
So as we're recording this podcast, and we've been saying this throughout, uh, don't know the verdict. It may have been uh, returned already. Um, they may still be deliberating. But as we record this, they are deliberating. Uh, so I don't know what that verdict's going to be. Uh, regardless of that fact, um, from my perspective, this trial really demonstrates the absolute beauty of our system of justice. Now, what we've witnessed is, is a case with a lot of resources poured into it, right? You've got Robert Durst and his millions of dollars and his defense team that can pour millions of dollars into his defense and fully investigate and hire the best attorneys and best investigators and, and, and experts and, and whatever you need to defend yourself. On the other side, you've got a prosecutor who's invested a decade in, into this prosecution and clearly had uh, the resources to, to put together this, this case. And when I say resources for a prosecutor, it includes time. I mean, many times prosecutors have such a large caseload that they can't spend the time necessary in all their cases. And in, and in this instance, John Lewin and his team clearly had the opportunity to do that. So we saw what we witnessed was an absolute epic battle with both sides um, maximizing their, their use of resources, their arguments, their time. It was, it was unreal. It was lawyering uh, inside that courtroom. Um, and it became personal to a certain extent. And each side trying to get an edge, uh, trying to get that ruling from the judge and, and, and trying to maneuver their case in front of this jury. We saw the, the back and forth where the defendant himself testified, which is generally rare in criminal cases. And, and we saw this cross-examination that lasted nine days. Nine days. We got to see this. And, and, and for the jury, they got to witness it all. And they took it all in during the course of five months. But, but now it's in their hands. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that millions of dollars were spent on the defense. You can't buy a verdict. It doesn't matter that you have all the resources uh, of, of, the, of the LADA at, at your disposal, right? You don't make the decision. The government doesn't make the decision. The judge doesn't make the decision. It's 12 ordinary citizens who randomly got a notice in the mail, showed up at the courthouse, and lo and behold, you know, a year and a half later, now have the case in their hands. And they are the only ones who can deliver the verdict. It is up to them. And as we speak, they're deliberating, and nobody tells them how to deliberate. They figure it out for themselves. They discuss the evidence. They, they, they make their arguments to each other. Um, they figure it out. And that's what makes our system so unique and, and to, from my perspective, so much more fair than any other system. Yes, we have rules, we have judges, we have lawyers, all of that. But at the end of the day, it's 12 people who, once they deliver that verdict, will leave the courtroom and never have to talk about it again, don't have to answer to anyone about it, and they can, they can move on in their lives. If they want, they can talk about it, obviously, but they don't have to. They're not obligated to anyone for anything. They're just there to hear the evidence and figure out what happened and tell us what it means. It's unbelievable. They're not professionals. They're not trained to do this. They're not jaded. You know, when, when you have a bench trial and you have a judge decide everything, all judges are jaded. 
They just are because they're in the system day in and day out. And, and, and you know, they've, they've heard every argument before and they, they walk around and they won't believe someone because I've heard that argument a million times before. But for jurors, this is all fresh. It's new. And, and they're the ones who make this decision. It's, it's amazing. And they have to be unanimous either way. They have to be unanimous to say not guilty or unanimous to say guilty. They all have to agree. Twelve people don't know each other. Twelve people who may have nothing in common other than the fact that they all got that letter in the mail and they made it through the jury selection process. So from my perspective, as, as we're sitting here during this part of the trial, um, I love this part of the trial because now it's I, no one can control it. The judge can't tell him what to do. The lawyers can't tell him what to do. Robert Durst can't tell him what to do. They tell us. They tell us, and that's the absolute foundation and the reason why our system of justice is the best in the world. Not perfect. We, we, we understand that all the time. But my goodness, it, 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 tell me a better system. Tell me a better system. What would be better than, than this? Right? You're judging your peers. That's what you're doing. And, and we have the right to agree or disagree with the way they saw the evidence. But the way I saw it doesn't mean anything. It's only those 12 people. So you want to see the verdict? If it's happened, check the show notes. If it hasn't happened, tune into Court TV, folks. This is what we do. We cover trials and we bring you these dramatic moments like uh, the verdict in the Robert Durst case. Um, if you have a digital antenna, rescan it so you can find our signal. Otherwise, you go on to courttv.com, click on where to watch, and you can find out uh, where to watch us because this is what we do every day. We cover trials. And every night, I take a look at the big moments from uh, cases around the country, uh, 8 to 11 every night. So uh, please do that. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We'll be back next week. And who knows, maybe we're, maybe we're still in deliberations next week, or maybe we're talking about the verdict and, and the reaction to the whole thing. Anyhow, thanks for listening. I'm Vinny Politan. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.